welcome to the BMJ podcast. I'm Navjoit Lada. And I'm Duncan Jarvis. This week we're at the Overdiagnosis Conference in Quebec, Canada. Preventing Overdiagnosis covers how physicians, researchers and patients can implement solutions to the problems of overdiagnosis and overuse in healthcare and it's part of our Too Much Medicine campaign. Now, if you're a doctor on Twitter, you've probably come across our next guest at some point. Vinay Prasad is an assistant professor of medicine at Oregon Health and Science University, and he's also author of the book Ending Medical Reversal. Vinay, thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. Um, so one of our previous guests, Stacey Carter, was talking about these moral shocks, points in time where something changes that makes you look back and see the world differently. Um, and in the context of overdiagnosis, maybe prompt some people to, uh, to take up the, the torch and, and start campaigning on it. Um, and it sounds like, from reading around, that you had one of these that, that informed the way you think about practice now. Can you I, tell us? Yeah, I think uh, I may have even had more than one, uh, a sort of a series of shocks that hit me probably towards the end of my medical training. Um, I would say one of the first things that comes to mind is uh, I think like many people, uh, particularly people outside of medicine and, and most of us when we're starting out, um, I had this idea that when a doctor recommended something, it would probably on average make the world a better place. They, surely they must know that that's the case before they would recommend it. Um, and then when I was a third year student, I was asked by on a couple of my rotations to take a closer look at just one topic, which was screening mammography. And you know, the more you delve into the literature on screening mammography and you start to read uh, some of the seminal papers over the last 10, 15 years, uh, the more you really are torn about whether or not it does have a net benefit or what are certainly what are the harms and what are the potential benefits and where the balance may tip. Um, so that was quite sobering for me as I think a student coming into it believing that surely this has to be a no-brainer and at the end leaving rather quite confused. And the second experience I think that comes to mind is when I was a resident, I worked uh, in the cardiac intensive care unit and uh, a frequent uh, cause of admission was to monitor a patient after the placement of, uh, of a percutaneously applied coronary stent. Mm -hmm. And certainly many of the patients that we put stents in were clearly uh, strongly indicated, uh, very well thought out stent placements for, of course, ST elevation MI, where it has a huge mortality reduction. Uh, but many other patients were patients who may have had chronic stable angina, and they were getting stents placed at a, at a very high rate. And I had just read the COURAGE study, uh, which gave me pause in terms of this is an intervention that not that long ago we thought would decrease heart attacks and improve longevity. And the COURAGE study showed rather convincingly it did neither of those two things. And yet I was shocked when I would talk to patients and ask them, you know, what do you think this procedure did for you? And they would tell me, boy, it's decreased my risk of having a future heart attack. And that was something that we knew was not the case. So there was this disconnect as well. And I think those were just some of the first inklings I had that perhaps not everything we do in medicine, uh, not all of those things that have been endorsed and, uh, and uh, promulgated through guidelines and medical advice, maybe not all of them are in the best interests of patients or maybe patients have misunderstandings about what are the benefits and risks. Mm. And Vinay, to what extent did your sort of growing awareness about these issues influence your choice of specialty? Maybe you tell us what specialty you, you are now in. Uh, so I guess I would say right now I'm a, I'm a practicing hematologist-oncologist, so I see a range of problems from benign hematology to malignant tumors, uh, both uh, uh, leukemias and solid tumors. 
And I think um, as someone who was increasingly getting interested in, in the evidence, I, I gravitated towards internal medicine, and that was the first branch point. I did three years of internal medicine training at, at Northwestern in Chicago, um, where I really got to sort of develop the tools of, I think, a good evidence-based practitioner practicing general medicine. And then what kind of drew me into oncology was just the vast amount of randomized controlled trials in the field, um, combined with you know some of the experiences of being an oncologist, uh, which range from providing treatments that have a curative intent towards really doing things to comfort people at the end of life. And so it was a combination of using evidence to inform a very broad range of doctor-patient encounters that kind of drew me in. Mm-hmm. And lots of this has been about culture change and you know the culture in which overdiagnosis and overtreatment can happen. Um, and it sounds like you had your eyes open fairly young, fairly early in your, your training. Um, were you the only one of your cohort to go through that, that was like that? Were you an outsider in that kind of point of view? Or do you think that was a general sort of opinion that was, that was going on with your colleagues? Oh, that's, a, that's a great question. So I think uh, people in my generation, there are a lot of us who gradually came around to the idea of recognizing over-treatment, over-diagnosis, that there were these persistent myths in, in medicine that may not have been supported by the best medical evidence. I might have been one of the f- few people in my cohort, in my medical school class, who sort of made it a research focus, but I've had a lot of people I've trained with who've gone out to become practitioners who have that kind of philosophy behind how they practice medicine. And they're the people that, you know, if I have a question about, you know, a neurosurgical patient, I call my friend who I think has thought about these issues very deeply, who's a neurosurgeon, and ask him, what would you do about somebody in this situation, you know, trying to separate the dogma from the evidence? Um, But I think, and as I meet, you know, more and more students of the younger generation, I'm always um, gratified to find that more and more of them are thinking critically about evidence, more and more are becoming better with statistical analysis, understanding the limitations of clinical trials and the strengths of clinical trials as well. Mm, it's interesting um, how that's gone through. So a number of things that Navjai and I have talked about uh, with people on the podcast before have, have really been about sort of like focus on the young and... and yeah, we're all too ingrained and, um, you know. Of, it was, um, it was yeah. Ian Chalmers and Doug Altman, I was talking to them, and they literally said, I think we possibly just have to wait for the older generation to die before before change comes through. But I mean, no, I've, the, I've heard that, and I think, you know, I think we have to admit that you know, medicine as an institution, I feel like, is a lot like a battleship. It doesn't turn on a dime, and there may be portions of medicine, practitioners of medicine, who become ossified in their thinking, and there's almost nothing new that you could take to such a person to get them to even consider some of the limitations of something like screening mammography or or routine stent placement. There's just nothing out there that could change their mind. And I think that's a a dangerous place to be. And that's the beauty of, you know, working with young people is that they haven't become ossified. They are very open to confronting their ideas with other ideas. Hmm. I mean, another place where things seem to be changing is um, the public's opinion about it, or at least, you know, general media's um, willingness to kind of question that that new is always best uh, kind of dogma. Um, and I think your book's past that. And, I'm, you know, I've read lots of um, coverage of it at, at the time that um, I think you've opened up some eyes there. Have you had a lot of interest from, you know, the media and the public about about reversing 
ending medical reversal. Yeah, I think that has to be one of the most gratifying parts about doing the book uh, and doing this kind of work is that each passing year, I feel like there are more and more reporters who call me who just fundamentally get it, get the issues about overdiagnosis and uh, and uh, and uh, overtreatment, and get the issues about uh, about that we're trying to raise awareness for. Um, and they have very thoughtful and interesting takes on on the newest and latest medicine. And they do tend increasingly to recognize when something new is really driven by hype, and when it actually is backed behind, backed up by the science. So that's been very gratifying. I do feel like there's been a shift. Um, and you know, it's not just it's just just me, of course. I you know, I think about people like uh, Gil Welch, mm. who you know, the work of Gil Welch over the last 15, 20 years has, I think, moved us from a place where to even talk about screening as if it wasn't uh, sacrosanct, that would be heretical. Now we're at a place where we can actually, in most circles, have a conversation about the benefits and the harms. Uh, just moving that has been sort of uh, a huge move in the public conscious, and we have you know patient advocates who are increasingly aware of the fact that not every diagnosis is a diagnosis that may offer them a benefit. Some merely offer risk. Um, we've been talking about um, how difficult that is to convey, though, sometimes, because um, particularly for some, well, using the example of screening, the, uh, the idea if you're conveying the harms of screening to the public um, versus the benefits, people can, the tangible benefit of, you know, a life saved, people will can really grasp that and hang on to that but the harms can sometimes be harder to conceptualize but do you feel that there's a shift there or do you think and why do you think that do you think there's a growing public awareness are we getting better at communicating what's changing if it is changing yeah i think i think there is a shift because i mean in the sense that um it, it wasn't long ago that uh, every diagnosis made through screening was thought to be a life saved, uh, but we've come a tremendous way to pointing out that some of those diagnoses, perhaps even a large percent, represent overdiagnosed cancers, which were cancers that would never have caused mortality or morbidity in the remainder of a patient's life. Uh, to be diagnosed with something like that just gives you another diagnosis. It gives you treatment, but it doesn't give you a uh, countervailing benefit. Um, that's been a very powerful message, I think, in terms of getting people to realize that, you know, this is not a perfect screening test. Uh, if it were a perfect test, there wouldn't be a debate about it. You know, we'd all be ardent supporters of it. The second thing is, I think, the rates of false positive biopsies and the anxiety that comes from that. And I think, you know, where the debate is now is it's about putting the right tools in the hands of individuals to make choices that best fit their beliefs about life and how much risk they're willing to take. I think that's a sort of an indisputable kind of position that we've kind of moved towards. And, uh, and that wasn't the case 15 years ago. Um, you know, it wasn't that long ago before, you know, the American Cancer Society put out an advertisement that said, if a woman hasn't had a mammogram, she needs more than her breasts examined, you know, mm -hmm. implying that it was sort of crazy not to do it. Mm -hmm. And on cancer, since mm -hmm. we, we've moved on to that, um, this is part of the framing, which I think we've been talking about a lot, and the way in which people's, um, where they're coming from sort of culturally, and how they, they sort of conceptualise in these things. And um, the word cancer is incredibly loaded. Uh, and some of the discussion um, in, in sessions here has been about that kind of bucket term for it. Um, do you think having this, this single idea of, of cancer is, is pushing over diagnosis and over treatment and, and making patients more worried about um, something like DCIS than they would be if it had a different name? 
Yeah, I think I think it's I think that's a that's a fantastic point. You know, um, clearly not every, of all the things we call cancer, there's a very broad spectrum of lethality, aggressiveness, invasiveness of these entities, and they range from the things that you, you know you really do worry about and the and you really do need to get on top of right away, all the way to the things that you know maybe. Uh, you 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 wonder if you really should have found, or if you if you really performed uh, aggressive testing in all people of a certain age, how many of these would you find, and how many of them are not going to do anything? So it's really quite a range, and to call all of it cancer, um, I think f makes people link these with sort of the memories of people in our lives who've had cancer and kind of dealt with it and struggled with it for years, uh, and that may be an inappropriate linkage in many in many cases. DCIS is one of them. Uh, you know, lots of studies show in the United States the way in which women deal with the diagnosis of DCIS tends to be very aggressive, including uh, things like a double prophylactic mastectomy uh, out because of a diagnosis of DCIS. Um, another one that comes to mind is thyroid cancer, a small papillary or, or follicular thyroid cancer. Uh, is often a very indolent condition uh, that if you really started scanning everybody, you would find a whole lot of. And in fact, in South Korea, they did that, and that's what they found, mm -hmm. without a countervailing benefit. So we do need a better way to have language describe you know, the severity of these different conditions. Uh, in fact, the language of using one term really deprives patients of the ability to make a, a, a clear choice because it's loaded with all of the things that are loaded onto cancer, uh, for better or worse, because of the experiences we've all had. Mm. So how do you take that into your practice? Because you, you, know, you give this diagnosis to, to patients. Does that, does that inform the way you talk about these? Yeah, I'll, I'll give you just you know, one example. is uh, In one of my clinics, I focus on lymphoma. And lymphoma is exactly what we're talking about. It's something that ranges from Burkitt's lymphoma or diffuse large B-cell lymphoma or Hodgkin's lymphoma, cancers where we have therapies that are potentially curative. And you know there is probably a benefit to starting very early with those treatments uh, and, and, and pushing for cure in those cases. We also have follicular lymphoma, which ranges very broadly from a very aggressive cancer to something that you just follow a patient for many, many years and perform just a physical exam to see how it's, how it's doing. And I spend a lot of time with patients um, to try to explain, you know, why it is that, you know, why it is we treat your cancer, the way we treat your cancer, how you should think about your cancer. And probably the hardest cases are the cases where you try to tell someone why we can just watch your cancer, why that is the best thing for you. Um, and you try to explain it. And, you know, of course, people come back at you and say, but this is cancer. Isn't it better to just get it out right away or treat it right away? And you point out that, well, that's true for some things, uh, but it's not true for everything. And, you know, uh, observation or careful, watchful waiting is sort of a treatment of choice of many low grade or early stage uh, follicular lymphoma. Interesting. Mm. I was just going to talk about um, one of the themes of this year's, or the big theme of this year's conference is um, towards responsible global solutions. And we've touched on some of them. So things like um, disease terminology, um, things like just an awareness of the uncertainty around a lot of what we take as being um, dogmatic, you know, irrefutable evidence. Often that evidence isn't there. And sometimes it's just a case of pulling the curtain back. Um, but what um, do you think are important priorities for for tackling over diagnosis particularly you know given that you do a lot of work with media where, where do you think some of the answers are going to lie i mean i think you know in terms of over diagnosis over treatment um we've talked about there there are real difficulties in 
um, dealing with things that have been broadly adopted and are in, are widespread, in widespread use. Um, as we've talked about, people become ossified in their thinking, and taking those things away has proven to be very difficult in many cases, uh, in some cases even intractable. Um, but the one thing that I feel like we have really tremendous potential to make an impact on is in preventing uh, these practices from being widely adopted without good evidence in the first place. Uh, that's something that I feel like is much easier to gain traction on, whether through better regulatory processes, better um, uh, understanding of principles of cancer screening. I'll, I'll give you one example. Uh, you know, there's a lot of enthusiasm and a lot of venture capital money in the use of a single blood-based screening test for all cancers. And when I read uh, a lot of the people who talk in this field, many of which are investors, uh, they seem to have equated the idea of finding any cancer at an early stage equals net benefit to a person. Uh, of course, we know, and we've learned very the painful way, that that is not always true. Um, and if we can make sure that blood-based screening for cancer, and I'm not sure if it will succeed or fail, I really don't know, but we must do the right studies for it before we broadly adopt it or implement it. Uh, I think we've learned the hard way through PSA screening and mammography that the, the worst time to do definitive studies on a cancer screening test is after it's been used for a decade. Mm -hmm. Definitely. I mean, I wanted to change yeah. tack a little bit here and say um, you're prevalent on Twitter. <laughs> there all the time um, and you know, I'll stick your uh, handle in the, the text so people can go and look because I think you do offer good insight but notoriously Twitter is the place where debate happens or perhaps trolling or mm. stuff so I'm just wondering in that field have you come across anyone or how do you think you're, you're coming across and are people really vociferously against your idea or with you or you know is that a mix? Yeah, so I think you're asking a good question, and I'll tell you, in all honesty, one of my colleagues recently came back to me from a conference, and he says, hey, this guy is at your university. Is he the same in person as he is on Twitter? Uh, and I wasn't sure that was a compliment, so uh, <laughs> that's what I, that gave me pause. But I think, you know, about Twitter, and there are a lot of debates, and I think as someone who's participated in many of these debates, I think the goal of the debate is not to persuade the person with whom you're having the debate about the merits of your position. It's to persuade all the people who are watching the debate. Mm -hmm. And when you start to think about it that way, um, I constantly try to pull arguments back from ad hominem or appeal to authority. I take those away from people I've tried to debate. I really try to come back to, these are the points on this debate, and let's have a debate about those points. Uh, can you refute or deny these points? You know, there is no evidence that uh, stenting stable angina improves mortality. Is there evidence? You know, can you offer such? And, and obviously, they cannot. Um, and I think that's important for the audience, and the audience is a lot of the people we want to reach, which are the young people in training. Um, and a lot of people have reached out to me to say, I found that a very informative debate. I, I learned about a paper that you tossed out there that I hadn't read before. Um, and so I've actually found it to be, I think, uh, you know, a, a fruitful use of time, although it is surely with its frustrations. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Your book, when it came out, I mean, obviously you did an enormous amount of work to, to pull that all together. Um, but coming from a point of, you know, scepticism and already knowing about things like having a deep dive into to mammography screening and things, um, was there anything in there, in your research, that made you go, oh my God, I can't believe that? Any, like, anything that stood out uh, amongst all the case studies that you sort of pulled together? 
Yeah, I think, you know, I guess many years ago we started to try to talk about, you know, that they've been these major things in, in medicine that we've done, we've extolled, we've pushed, uh, we've pushed through guidelines and we've pushed through professional recommendations and we've pushed our patients to do uh, that later were found to be lacking. And um, we had noticed that the one commonality they tended to have was that the definitive studies that could have settled the matter, they really weren't performed before we adopted it, they were performed almost decades later. Um, but when we first started publishing that, we met a lot of resistance. Um, one of the things we had heard from peer reviewers was, you know, it's easy to go through medicine and cherry pick examples um, and try to tell a story. Uh, I don't see anything you guys have done that is systematic. And so that's kind of what set us out to do uh, the work that led to that book, which was, can we look at this in a very systematic way? Uh, and of course, there is no perfect way to do that. We picked just one way. We picked one journal and a decade of papers in that journal. And we went through and we asked, um, you know, how often do not original articles uh, in the New England Journal of Medicine in, in the last decade uh, test something novel, and how often do they test an established medical practice? And the first thing we found was that nearly um, three quarters of articles tested something novel. They were the articles that were rivaroxaban is better than Coumadin, or uh, you know, ibrutinib is better than chlorambucil and CLL. Um, and if you tested something novel in the New England Journal of Medicine in those years, uh, you probably had positive results because 77% of the time, those results were favorable to the novel intervention. And I think that's what people mean when they talk about selective reporting or publication yeah. bias. We also found a quarter of articles that tested something that was established, something that doctors were doing day in and day out. And what surprised me, what made me sit back, was we found 40% of those studies actually contradicted what we were doing, found a lesser or uh, prior standard of care to be uh, no better, uh, to be better or, uh, or at least the same as the more aggressive, invasive, costly uh, intervention. Um, and I guess I was surprised to find that it was you know, maybe as high as 40%. Um, one of the things that, you know, I run into when I talk about it is um, people say, you know, there's some reasons why your estimate may be overestimated or underestimated, uh, but I like to point out that, um, you know, earthquakes in California are a fairly rare event, uh, but yet we still have building code that's uh, able to withstand earthquakes when they do happen. And similarly, medical reversal, maybe if the right percentage is 20% or 60%, it's still frequent enough that we need to think about are there systematic factors that are contributing to this problem. And I think, you know, why is reversal really problematic when we in Western medicine, in evidence-based medicine, start reporting to the public that we had gotten these things wrong. There is a prominent faction of the public that's eager to seize upon these things and take it uh, as a reason to dismiss all of Western medicine. And that, of course, would be a mistake. Um, but, it's also, so, but it's also something that we should do our best to sort of minimize because it does real harms to patients and, and the people who pay for healthcare. Mm. Um, so I think, I think the biggest thing that surprised me was just how frequent it happened. Mm. So we recently published an analysis in the BMJ which was questioning the evidence base for courses of antibiotics mm. and the duration of treatment, which is another example of an area where you think, oh, there must be good definitive evidence on this, but there isn't. Mm -hmm. And so there's all this uncertainty. Have you come across any other areas or what do you think are the key areas where you've been surprised or where you think there are gaps that need to be addressed as a priority? I guess you're right. I mean, there's certain fields in biomedicine that uh, are really sort of chronically uncertain because we've just had a paucity of well-done studies in that field. And, and one of the things you've mentioned is great, uh, the duration of antibiotics. To me, um, one of the things that sticks out is 
uh, invasive procedures, surgical procedures that are done where the primary endpoint is the improvement of a subjective complaint, such as pain or discomfort, um, uh, those in general have a very weak evidence base, usually an uncontrolled evidence base. And when they have been tested against sham studies in the New England Journal of Medicine, I hate to say it, but I think every single time we looked at a sham controlled study of a procedural intervention for pain, it contradicted the, the procedural intervention for pain uh, in our analysis. Um, there is much work to be done for all of the procedural interventions for pain that we haven't tested in sham controlled studies. Um, another field that comes to mind is, is unfortunately nutrition, mm -hmm. nutritional science. Um, we have made uh, incredible blunders in the history of public health by recommending some nutritional intervention. One year it's never eat certain fats, the next year it's, uh, oh, we were totally wrong about that. Um, you know, a series of, uh, of randomized trials would have great impact on just some very fundamental nutritional claims. Um, but, you know, I think one of the things reversals tells you is it also tells you um, that the, the fields in which reversals happen are fields where there are at least some people out there brave enough to subject what they've been doing for years uh, to rigorous study. Uh, I just think of one example, uh, this gentleman, Bernie Fisher, who was uh, one of the PIs on the studies that actually showed radical Halstead mastectomy was no better than ma simple mastectomy, which was later shown to be no better than lumpectomy and radiation. And you know, when you read reports about the sort of pressure Bernie Fisher faced in terms of being yelled at at professional conferences, um, told that he was allowing the deaths of many women, and of course, years later to be vindicated and to take a very morbid procedure and show that a much less invasive procedure was just as good, I mean, this is a true hero of medicine. And they've been heroes in, in many fields, um, but in some fields, there just haven't been people to, who are willing to put what they've been doing for a long time to the test. Mm. That's a really nice answer. Mm. Interesting. Um, is there anything that you want to um, express? In I guess I think back about this, you know, quote, uh, he who forgets history is condemned to repeat it. And I think that that is really so true for biomedicine. Um, you know, if you read back, if you go back and you read the lessons of a trial like CAST, which tested whether antiarrhythmic drugs like flecainide had a role uh, acutely after myocardial infarction, uh, you will read a lot of people who said, of course they work, they suppress PVCs, PVCs have been implicated in sudden cardiac death. Mm -hmm. Even studying such a question is unethical. It would be unethical to randomize someone not to have this intervention. And you've seen that, and then you learned, of course, in, in 1991 and 92, that these are drugs that actually increase mortality. Um, and yet, even today, in 2017, we see over and over uh, proponents of interventions that have never been rigorously studied saying that to study this rigorously would be unethical, would be a waste of money, would be foolish, because of course it works. Mm -hmm. And to me, that really is sort of forgetting history and forgetting that even the most compassionate, thoughtful, um, smart doctors can be wrong because our pathophysiologic models are not as complex as the human body and nature is still more mysterious than we have elucidated. Uh, so we really do need to subject things we think ought to work uh, to rigorous empirical study. Um, avoiding a randomized trial should really be the exception and not the rule. And yet in biomedicine, I think we find many, many practices each passing year are adopted based uh, without randomized studies, well done studies. Um, and often there may be other perverse reasons for adoption like uh, financial gain to providers or to third parties who manufacture the products. And I think that is one of the major uh, failings that in biomedicine that we ought to deal with. Mm. And I was gonna say, I mean, your 
specialty, cancer, mm-hmm. is... Mm-hmm. It's ripe with it. Yeah, yeah particularly. <laughs> yeah. The worst, possibly? I mean, it's, it's, it is certainly, uh, it's certainly up there in terms of offenders. And, you know, just one of the practices I've been uh, very critical about, which is the use of commercial laboratories performing next-generation sequencing or whole exome sequencing on patients with relapsed cancers of diverse tumor types, uh, because that's being done in widespread fashion. At least 100,000 people in the United States have had that done at tremendous cost, several thousand dollars per person. It leads to the off-label use of toxic, $100,000 cancer drugs, and we have no idea if this is better than providing care the old-fashioned way based on uh, the site of disease. Uh, and there's only been one randomized study on this topic. It's been negative, uh, and there's a reluctance to do more randomized studies. There's a few, but there are a lot of people doing more uncontrolled studies that aren't going to settle this question. Um, but that's just one example of oncology embracing something, uh, hyping something, without really knowing if it makes our patients better off. And I think you know, you don't have to look far to know that we've been wrong before, especially in oncology on this topic. But then at the same time, it is important to develop yes. and to get new things. So how do you think the balance then needs to work and, and encourage innovation, but also protect the, the public from, from harm? Yeah, I think we certainly need innovation and you should certainly be free to do, you know, some uncontrolled studies to try to ascertain if something's going to be promising. But there has to be a tipping point where you say, we've done this enough that it's time now to do the large-scale effective efficacy study. Uh, I think 100,000 patients to undergo sequencing without a positive randomized trial, I think that's probably too much. They've gone too far. Um, But you're right. There is no one-size-fits-all answer for when that tipping point should be. But we shouldn't forget that there are a lot of people um, whose incentive is never to do that study uh, because it can only contradict something they've been doing. uh, And they will rather broadly implement something than to do that study to clarify if it works. And then they may truly also be like the people who didn't want to put their patients on the CAS trial, uh, true believers that it would be unethical not to offer this service. Um, So, you know, there was that old saying by, uh, was it... uh, Tom Chalmers that uh, randomized the very first patient uh, uh, as, you know, it's the most equitable and uh, logical way to do studies. And I'm not sure if it has to be the very first patient, but it has to be before the 1,000th patient. Mm -hmm. It has to be something in between the Mm -hmm. two. So I just want to ask you, Vinay, how do you, when thinking about overdiagnosis, how do you feel about the future? I mean, on the one hand, things may be slowly changing, you're engaging with a sort of younger generation of doctors through Twitter and other means, um, but at other times it does feel like this is a huge um, sort of medico-industrial complex that we're facing. So what do you think the future holds and how do you feel about it? I think that's a tough question and probably like, like many of us who work in this field, I wax and wane between optimism and pessimism myself, uh, maybe even on a daily basis. Um, But I do think in the long run, I am optimistic. And I I say that because this is a problem that just simply cannot be ignored. And one of the indicators that it cannot be ignored is the discrepancy between healthcare spending and outcomes in the United States. Uh, We spend thousands of dollars more per capita on, on healthcare, and we have health outcomes that are inferior to nations that spend far less. Um, we're, we're at 
20% GDP on healthcare, there has to be a, a point where we cannot spend that percentage of GDP on healthcare, 30%, 40%, 50%. And much of that spending, and this has been shown in several papers, uh, is likely waste. It's likely harmful, not beneficial spending. And so there is, I think, a big push to identify these practices and de-adopt them so that we can put our money to best use. Um, to the practices that really do have a healthcare benefit that are at the same time in the United States underutilized because of vast um, inequalities in healthcare access uh, that still persist despite the efforts we've made. And so I think that it's just simply the, the fact that this problem is, is, is getting worse and uh, recognition of this has to happen. You've been listening to Vinay Prasad talk about too much medicine. We'll be back with more interviews from the conference over the next day or so, so keep an ear out for them. Subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from, so you don't miss out. Thanks for listening.